Hi, I am Anurag Mishra, a PhD candidate at the School of International Studies, Jawaharlal Nehru University. I am also a law major. I am an area studies scholar and I study the United States of America. My research focuses are uh, US foreign policy, religion in politics and contemporary ethics. Hi everyone, I am Dr. Shriparna Pathak and I am an associate professor at OP Jindal Global University. I am the co-editor of the book Rifts and Dynamics, Russia's Ukraine War and Northeast Asia. I am Dr. Manoj Kumar Panigrai, currently an assistant professor and co-director of Center for Northeast Asia Studies at Jindal School of International Affairs, Jindal University. And I teach about East Asian politics, Taiwanese domestic politics, cross-state relations between Taiwan and China, and also as conflict management and peacemaking. You're listening to Indo-Pacific Voices, a podcast for regional perspectives on a wide range of topics with one mission, to explore the emergent issues facing the Indo-Pacific. So Dr. Pathak and Dr. Panikray, today we are discussing your latest book, Drifts and Dynamics. Russia's Ukraine war and Northeast Asia. Why don't we start with you telling our listeners what your book is about? Why did you decide to write it? And most importantly, why do you think this book is important in the present context? You know, why did we write this book, um, Drifts and Dynamics, Russia's Ukraine war? Um, You know, after the Second World War, there were a lot of institutions, a lot of regimes, a lot of laws which were created so that a war of the scale of the Second World War does not take place again. But then here we are in 2022, while the scale is not really the same, again, this is again another war which has started in Europe. And it has caused a lot of things which were created in the aftermath of the Second World War to undergo a sea change. You know, the question, the vitality of the United Nations has come under the scanner all over again. Um, You know, there are new forms of warfare which have come to the fore. Uh, The usage of the internet, how to deal with it. There's a host of questions which have come up. Now, why do we focus on Northeast Asia? Well, you know, Northeast Asia or East Asia rather has been a very dynamic region. Um, You know, be it Japan and the way it has developed after the Second World War as a technological superpower or South Korea, you know. Uh, the way it has leveraged A technology, B its software. Um, a lot of things are happening in this region. Um, you know, and I'm trying to not talk about China because you know it takes all the um, space when we talk about international politics. But even beyond the PRC, there are these countries which are doing quite a lot in terms of you know this flux in international relations. North Korea, for one, you know, has been testing a lot of nuclear weapons ever since, you know, February 24th happened. So the question arises, why? You know, what exactly does North Korea gain here? Interestingly, North Korea is one of the five countries to support Putin by opposing United Nations resolutions. Um, So, you know, probably Pyongyang expects military technologies and economic aid from Russia in return for its political support. Maybe Russia would leverage its prowess as a permanent member of the UN Security Council to support Pyongyang's nuclear tests, etc. Now, as opposed to this, we have Taiwan, we have Japan and we have South Korea. Taiwan, ever since February 24th happened, has been grappling with this question, would China unleash a similar sort of war? And, you know, a lot of questions have come to the fore. What exactly has Taiwan done to prepare for the war? Um, 
So that's another new question. Then comes South Korea, even though, you know, South Korea is an ally of, um, you know, one of the closest uh, USA's uh, allies, non-NATO allies. Um, the thing is, despite the stance Seoul has taken against Russia, um, its initial response to the war was very measured. The question comes again here, why was it so measured, right? Uh, the former government under Moon Jae-in supported international sanctions, but it did not go ahead like some of the other allies, like Australia, for example, and did not impose its sanctions. Uh, you know, some members of the ruling Democratic Party of Korea even blamed Ukrainian President Zelensky for provoking Russia. So there's a lot happening. And then there's Japan, for example, uh, you know, which, which has... If you see its responses now, there's a sea change from the way it was immediately after the Second World War. It's, you know, Japan's response has been outright condemnation. And, uh, you know, in addition to the multilateral sanctions against Russia, Japan has levied its own sanctions against Russia. So, you know, a lot of things are happening in this region. And the world has not really taken, I would say, full academic cognizance of this, despite the fact that this is such an important region. So we thought, um, why not look at some of the responses from this region and then try and understand the direction in which international politics could be headed. So um, the war is far from over. And um, we thought if we could come up with a book which analyzes the initial responses right up to, you know, uh, the book is right up to, covers data up to June, then this could be a repository for future such academic work. So, you know, the, which is why this book, A, it's the first such book um, on Russia's Ukraine war and, you know, how Northeast Asia has been responding. B, this is going to be a repository of knowledge of information for future such academic work. So um, this is why I thought it would be important. Dr. Panigrahi, would you want to add something to it? Yes, uh, thank you, uh, Dr. Pathak, and also thanks to Mr. Anurag for having us here to talk about our book. Um, I think largely um, the reason why we came up with the book has been covered by Professor Pathak. Just to add with this, um, one thing that you, uh, we all realize at the moment, uh, over the weeks, as Russia have invaded or attacked Ukraine, um, there was a lot of parallels being drawn between uh, different conflicts around the world, uh, like how this country will be doing it. One such was between uh, cross-state relations, that is Taiwan and China. And uh, there was a cases like there have been multiple cases like, okay, China, uh, I'm sure most of us have read about different articles that came up saying, is Taiwan be the next uh, Ukraine um, over the between China and yeah, Taiwan. So yes, so this is something that we thought that uh, these questions can be addressed in the book. For example, um, one of the book chapter deals with cyber attacks or the cyber diplomacy, uh, which kind of covered about the huge cognitive warfare that came out against the Ukraine by Russia just before the war actually happened, the invasion began. And the same time, also, there are a lot of disinformation among the Taiwanese audiences and the East Asian audiences about uh, from China saying that, okay, the people have to listen to China in a certain way or else they are going to face such and such consequences. So this is something uh, that the book have dealt about, not only limited, as Professor Patak said, if we talk only about China, uh, there is no ending. But... Uh, we try to pull up all the Northeast Asian countries from an Indian perspective 
and came out with uh, this book uh, having most of these countries' responses to such uh, um, Russia-Ukraine crisis. Yes. Andra. That's very uh, conclusively you, both of you uh, spoke about the book and uh, it, Professor Patak, uh, you know, in, actually covered uh, a couple of questions that I was going to ask uh, and I will ask those questions, but uh, uh, that's a very, and very rightly said that, you know, because the war is going on, and who knows how long will the war last? And to have a repository of knowledge, which can tell us about the conflict in real time and, you know, record it for the posterity also. Uh, I think it's very important and very timely uh, that the book has come. Uh, so I will now move on to, you know, uh, like Dr. Pathak uh, already spoke about the responses uh, that various countries in the region have had towards the war. But still, I like if we can talk about the responses that you know Northeast Asian countries have uh, had towards the war, and uh, you know what does the war mean for Northeast Asia? Whether like what implications the war has on Northeast Asia, as you know, Dr. Patak said about North Korea, like why it has come up very steadfastly with Russia, because maybe it is expecting something from Russia. But uh, the other countries, you know, for example, Japan has you know very categorical categorically. Uh, condemned. So if you can talk about a little uh, on why certain responses have been condemnation and certain responses have been of, you know, acquiescence or maybe even support. Uh, like, uh, yeah, this is probably if you can talk about a little about that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I when I was answering the first question, I didn't talk really about China because uh, China, well, it is right. seen as a challenge. It takes up a lot the, of space, actually. It, it, takes up, it takes up a lot of space. So, you know, China definitely wants to be the leading power. And as you might have seen in all in a lot of pronouncements, starting from the 19th Party Congress onwards, it is clear that, you know, Xi Jinping no longer wants to stick to uh, Tao Kuang Yanghui or, you know, hiding one's power, abiding one's time, as Tang Xiaoping had stated. At the 19th Party Congress, Xi Jinping had even said that, you know, developing countries could follow the governance model of um, China, you know, which is which in itself shows that China is now willing to take on the position of the leading power in the world. Um, is it really prepared right now to do so? Well, you know, maybe militarily, it's not really there yet. Economically, well, not too far away. Um, you know, but China has been doing a lot of things to ensure or to project itself as the leader. Then this war takes place. And um, it definitely took Xi Jinping or the PRC off guard to quite an extent. Because while, you know, there's, see, because because of the opacity of the internet and information technology, there's no way to, you know, actually arrive at a conclusion whether there was truly a collusion whether Putin actually discussed this war with Xi Jinping, you know, on February 4th during the Beijing Olympics. There's no way to find that out. Um, But let's look at what does China gain out of this, you know. So in the chapter, um, you know, uh, the second chapter, which, you know, the the first, sorry, the first chapter, which I actually write, um, and I try to track if there was a collusion between China and Russia. Um, what I do in order to understand if there's a collusion between China and Russia is that I take out the two statements which have been put out by Kremlin and by Beijing on the no limits friendship. And in that, you know, um, there are certain key terms which both the sides use. Now, Kremlin has put out a statement which is 5,000 words long. Uh, Beijing's statement is more crisp and shorter. But the thing is, there are key terms and key themes 
which both the sides have used despite the fact that you know the thinking processes of the chinese and the russians definitely would be different because both have different power calculations both have different language both have different cultures um but they use the term democracy now the, the interesting or the funny bit here is neither are democracies but they talk about a democratic world order clearly showing that they have an alternate model of governance in mind then they talk about transparency now, either of these countries especially china is not transparent at all so there are a lot of these terms with both the sides use another interesting bit is china does not like using the term indo pacific because it shows the centrality of india and you know it has been mocking a lot of countries including australia starting in 2018 saying that oh you know this term indo pacific is just to you know create some sort of buzz etc now it when it has put out the statement of the february 4th no limits friendship it has referred to indo indo pacific as asia pacific russia also does the same russia also calls the region asia pacific so clearly showing that there is some sort of collusion between the two china's approach again has been very interesting it's a three pronged approach first is diplomatically absentions you know showing that well we don't want to take sides we are neutral etc but if you look domestically if you track the social media in 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 china which clearly is controlled by the state or there's a lot of surveillance putin is held as a hero and you know uh, it is seen that yeah putin is doing the right thing against the west because the west tries to uh, pulverize countries like china russia etc that's the second prong and the third prong of china's approach has been that it has been trying to reach out to ukraine giving some bits of food aid or you know medical aid etc it wouldn't really want to let go completely of ukraine because well it's an important bri country so a three pronged approach as compared to russia which is clearly a hedonistic power which does not care much as to how economic sanctions are going to hurt its economy china cares about how its economy will get impacted by any sort of sanctions because well let's face it china's power at the international level is tied to its economics so china would not want to suffer the same fate as russia so it's being very clever very cautious but at the same time if you even if you look at that laughable global times it has been throwing its weight behind russia so um china and russia would want to have an alternate model of governance across the world they would want to have an alternate model of international relations but are russia and china really friends the relationship between the two is not strategic it's more tactical these two also have a lot of issues russia for example would not want china in its backyard you know but china's outreach to the pri countries in central asia has been astounding that is not much to the liking of um, so of of uh, of russia then you know demographic changes in the far east where you know uh, border towns uh, people just speak chinese not no longer russian of course you know russia also has a huge pride as far as its language its culture goes so it's not to the liking of the russians but then for temporary goals which is to you know um <clears throat> overthrow the west's model of governance the two would collude so this is one very interesting approach you know um then you know i i mentioned uh, north korea's and what it sort of kind of, kind of wants wants to gain through uh, its responses taiwan um you know why when we were writing this we did not know that pelosi's uh, nancy pelosi's visit would happen and things would flare up to this extent uh but you know this this helps us put things in perspective so um 
because there are so even within one country be it the prc or taiwan or japan so many things are happening you know tracing and tracking these responses become very important and i know because i was talking about china i've taken up a lot of space but uh, dr panigre do you want to add something Uh, thank you professor patak uh, yes i think you have beautifully put up uh, the chinese uh, angle uh, the what they thinking towards this war and the russia china collateral um, just to add to this uh, one thing we can also notice is that the china didn't uh, like vote in favor or against it mostly abstained on the united nations uh, uh, against the war or against russia war against ukraine so we can see this thing that it also as dr parth beautifully put is about it also has lot of things to learn from this war uh, i will try to connect this part with the chapter that i wrote against about taiwan how is it that china is taking military lessons also uh, from this war where it is seeing where a power a, or say a former superpower that is soviet russia or currently russia um kind of going all out against a smaller country ukraine right so it, and here we see us and its allies supplying military arms ammunition and other sort of support uh, where they have economically boycotted russian oligarchs the russian uh, ministers individuals so and so so what china has to learn from here is about how the western power look into it so the chapter on taiwan that i have contributed to this book uh, is taking an angle a bit of theoretical angle about push and pull on whether us is a going to be the third wheel between us taiwan uh, so the china taiwan uh, conflict if it if it's going to happen and just contributing with this thing us it's all in us interest again to have its status quo maintained and so for the region as well but we kind of the recently uh, we saw pelosi's uh, nancy pelosi's visit it created some people also call it as the fourth missile crisis right so uh, it and nearest missile that reached yeah the nearest yeah. missile that reached to um the to taiwan shore was about 9 kilometers so that is very very close and some of these missiles where the japanese defense ministry came saying that out of the 11 missiles that was fired by china about five of them landed at japanese economic zone so it mm-hmm. kind of shows that what message that china is trying to show towards the world that i can go out of the first island blockchain the first block of islands okay first island so this is something where we can uh look at and uh, that's i think uh, some of the responses that for your questions yeah yeah uh, thank you that does explain a lot of things which are going around these days and uh, dr patak as she mentioned that you know the russian reservations which they may have uh, vis-a-vis china they might come to the fore later but right now they do have uh, a friendship that is uh, focused on getting rid of the us led world order and that that might be their primary goal for the moment uh, but yeah this is this is a question which requires a lot of uh, understanding like but uh, yeah rightly said so all right so we'll go on and uh, now it's a very cliche question uh, the, the next one that i have for you uh, you know a lot of people ever since this started the war 
uh, and you know how China and Taiwan things flared up and Pelosi's visit, everything that happened uh, in the recent past, people are talking about whether this is the new Cold War or Cold War 2.0. So do you think that this can actually be so protracted that it can go long for, you know, maybe 10, 20, 30 years, uh, like the previous Cold War that we saw? And, you know, if yes, uh, do you can you chart a course for it or can you predict a course, how it goes and, you know, who comes up, who tops, who, you know, who falls. So if you can just reflect upon whether like your understanding of or your analysis of whether this can become the new Cold War. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, this is not a cliched question. It's actually a very interesting question. Um, you know, superficially, superficially, it seems like this is, you know, Cold War 2.0 and, um, well, mm-hmm. uh, you know, instead of it being USSR, USSR versus the US, right now it's China-Russia versus the US, you know, because right. um, well, China also wants to get rid of the US as the leader of the international system. But then, you know, um, we are living in a multilateral world order wherein, wherein there are other countries which are important and here is where i'll bring in india uh, we've not talked about india in the book but uh, you know this it, this becomes important because we are indian scholars at the end of the day based in india and you know uh, we definitely get um, influenced by a lot of things happening in india as far as foreign policy is concerned so um, you know during the cold war india was non-aligned and um, uh, well you know uh, india and china did have issues even back then starting from 1962-1967, India's support to the creation of Bangladesh, etc. Um, right now also we do seem to have, well, not seem to have, we definitely have issues with the Chinese because True. they've you know, breached our sovereignty, etc. But as compared to back then, both India and China are important players in this multilateral international system. Now, China's worldview is very vertical with China at the top and other countries below it. But the multilateral world order that we live in sees more of a horizontal distribution of power. So this is one huge difference. You know, um, There were you know, two blocks during the Cold War. One was uh, you know, led by the US, one was led by the USSR. Um, right now, we don't have that those two blocks as of now so you know superficially there are a lot of similarities but if you uh, delve a little bit deeper you'll see differences okay now coming to india when february 24th happened um, and the voting started there was a lot of questioning from western um, india's western allies that you know why has india abstained etc and there was this fear which was uh, very rampant that you know maybe india is also going to get sanctioned but the thing is uh, once now our foreign policy is more vocal. It's more strong, you know, as, as opposed to what it was in the past. Once we did explain, as Dr. Jayashankar explained, that, you know, why does Europe keep trying to point fingers at us, uh, you know, regarding oil, oil supplies, when, you know, despite the fact that we are a country of, well, 1.3, 1.4 billion people, going to be the largest populated, like, most populated country in the world next year. Despite that, the amount of oil that we import from Russia is much lesser than what Europe, given its population. I've got a, I've got a particular question with regard to India's uh, oil purchases. So, okay. <laughs> that so I'll, I will not. That I'll definitely yeah, I'll, talk to you about. Yes. <laughs> okay, so I'll not delve yeah. too much into it, but mm-hmm. you know, just to why uh, I, I talked about this is just to talk about Dr. Jayashankar's response or India's response. Now, when we did give out these responses and we explained to our 
to our friends you know um i will not call it allies because well we are not allies uh, but we, when we did explain to our friend when we did explain it to our friends then all countries especially within the quad be it australia be it japan or the us understood you know the kind of relationship and the quagmire that we find ourselves in this is primarily europe's war it is very far away from our borders and at right. this juncture we are already embroiled in a conflict since 2020 with the chinese with the pla sitting inside our borders so we can only put our national interest first we cannot give up our arms supplies when we have the pla sitting within our borders beyond that well you know our our citizens were struck there you know so it became pertinent any government any government from across the world be it the poorest country's government or the richest country's government it would want to secure its citizens that's what a government does that's what indian government also wanted to do so when we did explain all of this you know the response has been amicable you know india has been stepping up its defense supplies from a lot of other countries the us has also said that well we will you know increase our defense supplies etc so right. um as opposed to what might have happened during the cold war when we could have gotten sanctioned or penalized in some way that hasn't happened this time that is because india is an important player and this is a multilateral international system so you know in in my opinion this is not really a cold war 2.0 superficially it does seem so but we are still in a multilateral world order how long will this world war go on for um it's very difficult to make that prediction um but i don't see russia backing down so easily as i said it's a hedonistic power doesn't have proper calculations does not really care about its economy right. Right. it just has its pride so is it going to back down is putin going to back down difficult to say does not seem plausible is ukraine going to back down does not seem possible either arms supplies are going on so this is going to be protracted and there'll be a lot of strains and stresses so the world will have to come up with newer institutions newer mechanisms so that's how i see it right yeah also because russia still hasn't made too clear what its goals are in ukraine so mm-hmm. like whatever they came up with the statements they uh, you know mean i wouldn't say they mean much or they give a clear picture of what russian aims are in ukraine but mm-hmm. yeah how it goes from there it's difficult to yeah, it's it solely depends on how russia wants it to go so that's very true uh, so uh, yeah so i just also want to ask because when the war started a lot of people were actually shocked by the response because you know although there were uh, statements from the us also that you know war may be in the offing but still it took a lot of us by surprise that why did russia ukraine like russia invade ukraine and you know with the initially the the bombar the bombings and all those things they were too much uh, and people didn't understand why russia did it and it's mm-hmm. still you know it's still uh, you know it's a question in my mind that you know what does russia gain from this war territory some oil fields here and there some nuclear plants but what exactly is russia gaining from this war and you know what does it stand to lose also because we see that you know it's definitely a loss of reputation uh, yeah. you know it is no longer seen as a responsible power it is you know a lot of people think that putin is uh, not only a dictator but he is also a warmonger and it yeah. definitely yeah. will increase uh, the russophobia that we see in you know various parts of the world we mm-hmm. are seeing boycotts happening and you know wimbledon russian players are not there and mm-hmm. we have seen that you know big moneyed people have been you know leaving russian citizenship some players also uh, 
you know lost their uh, you know on purpose lost their russian citizenship and took up some other countries uh, citizenship so what exactly is russia looking to gain from this war is my question what does russia really want respect respect yeah. from the west respect okay. from the west it wants mm-hmm. to have the same sort of stature that it had as the ussr as one of mm-hmm. the most formidable players um it has been vying for this respect not just in 2022 but for a very long time you know ever since putin came putin came into power you know even before the war on terror etc he tried different mm-hmm. methods you know right. he he talked about yeah okay well let's th- initially let's throw our weight behind the war on terror then he backtracked because color revolutions he saw the west backing it and then you know he probably assumed that yeah you know it's still the west versus you know uh, russia um and honestly you know that that whole phobia of the russo phobia hasn't really gone away from um the west the russia still continues to see west as a threat for a lot of reasons but do you Not see this russia, this plan of russia to sorry to interrupt but you know do you see mm-hmm. this plan working because i don't see why like Russia can be feared Russia can be seen as a power you know which can cause destruction in a small country but do you mm-hmm. still would you use the term respect for Russia in the wake of whatever Russia has been doing see it wants respect would it get respect that's a separate story altogether and i would like to bring in india here again you know you right. mentioned that there's a huge mm-hmm. loss of face even mm-hmm. india which has not really condemned russia the fact mm-hmm. is this shook our faith you know uh, in the kind of supplies that we have can can have from russia so you know uh, even though we have abstained if you see our domestic discourse even in our book we openly call it war our citizenry mm-hmm. understands it's a war like unlike russia or in china the word war is not banned in india india is trying to move its defense supplies away from russia this is the effect of a loss of face loss of credibility we don't know what sort of world order would be there under such a hedonistic leader or you know a country which is so which is so angry and arrogant that it doesn't think right. twice as to how it is disrupting the international peace and security so uh, there's definitely a loss of face and it's not just india a lot of other countries are recalibrating so uh russia might want something it it wants respect it wants uh to show itself as powerful is it really getting it, it you know it's no longer we're not living in those ages wherein you can just you know punch people or punch countries and make them believe that okay here is a powerful country exactly. there are a lot of other mechanisms so as i said russia is it's it's a completely it does not base its calculations on logic so which is why this which is why we have this and is it going to stop at ukraine russia has made putin has talked about you know um, other european countries it gets getting very flared up when you know other countries are talking about nato membership etc so uh, these are just there even if nato is expanding there is a civilized there is a peace there are mechanisms to talk about it without actually going and killing people right. killing civilians absolutely so, true um that's how i see it so now uh, i would like dr pani grehi to speak on taiwan since he specializes in taiwan also read his bio is studied at taiwan as well so now because you know uh, as a very like uh, it's a it's an ordinary corollary to whatever is happening in ukraine to you know try and draw parallels between whether this can happen in uh, you know taiwan as well uh, you know uh, the, like china has 
uh, its plans ready for you know or it's clear that you know china wants taiwan it sees uh, at like as taiwan as its own territory so and a lot of people thought that you know when ukraine war happened that china may you know follow uh, russia uh, vis-a-vis taiwan so dr panigrey would you like to speak on the taiwan question per se and will we see uh, because us has made clear you know after pelosi's visit it has become more reaffirming that us might come to taiwan's rescue uh, in a way and so will we see a us versus china in taiwan or we'll see a proxy war uh, if at all a war happens and then it's a very interesting question because uh, you know will china really want to take taiwan through sheer military force because we saw what ha- happened in hong kong uh, hong kong just went in you know like hong kong ceased to be there as uh, an autonomous country or you know autonomous state rather uh, so will china you know do a similar tactics with uh, taiwan it will wait and you know until it is uh, feasible to have taiwan within china or will it go on with a uh, with a military offensive like russia did so how do you think it going from here vis-a-vis taiwan china and taiwan okay uh thank you uh, mr anurag for this questions yeah. and uh, yes i was i was there in taiwan for a lot for many years and uh, coming to this uh, i will like to bring in the domestic uh, angle of taiwan to cross strait relations or when the questions of us comes out so right. if you look at uh, how the identity uh, of people so i do have the survey numbers as of last year june only mm-hmm. uh, 62.3% taiwanese think themselves right. as taiwanese okay mm-hmm. those people 31.7% think both as taiwanese and chinese and mm-hmm. remember the number right. 62.3 considered as taiwanese mm-hmm. 31.7 as both taiwanese and chinese but the only 2.8% people considered as chinese of those people who live in mm-hmm. taiwan so it shows right. there has been a ran- very huge change uh, mm-hmm. of how the identity of the people looked into it and how far us will interfere into taiwan well that's is something that is an ever um, say ever changing process i would say recently uh, from especially the trump administration when trump administration took over you mm-hmm. see there was a talk about the uh, president chinguan of taiwan she had a phone call with trump and immediately mm-hmm. uh, there was a response from chinese side saying that you are touching our core interest right so and it was created flutter and followed by the trade war that happened but under biden um, this uh, especially when nancy pelosi's visit but again nancy pelosi's visit is not the first us house of representative that visited taiwan it was long back in 97 1997 right. also at the then Uh, house of representative visited mm-hmm. whether china is going to invade or not nobody knew that whether russia will be doing an actual invasion at this scale right. until it happened right. Right? right so i won't look at that far but what we i would say that in the next fo- following 5 years it will be very hard for china to um, uh, to get into taiwan especially militarily 
so what it has started doing is it has done a huge amount of um, fake news entering into Taiwanese social medias like PTT and DPT. Uh, the local social media channel have given that both of them use the same language. It's much easier. And also right. interfering to the local elections. In the following October, November, there are local elections coming up. So there is a huge chance, and I'm sure there is already now also, there's a huge chance of uh, uh, cognitive warfare, like fake news coming up, saying that if you don't right. vote for this candidate, China will attack you. Or if you right. don't vote for this candidate, uh, this uh, certain supplies will be uh, stopping itself from going to China. So on this angle, and China will wait, and it will wait until nobody touches Taiwan. The reason being, uh, Taiwan's demographic changes is happening very fast, and it is already a super age society. Uh, the mm -hmm. the continuous force, um, the when the Chinese pilots enter into the median line between China and Taiwan, it has reduced the operational readiness of Taiwanese Air Force because numerically it is very small and it has caused pilot fatigues, uh, crashes, uh, no matter how advanced the uh, you know, military hardware or the technology they have, but at the end of the day, it is the manpower that's defined uh, or defending a territory uh, at the end. It is the man who, which operates the machine, which is where Taiwan will be lacking if there is a large scale invasion on similar terms what Russia did to Ukraine. Yeah. So that's where I would look at. Yeah. Exactly. Taiwan, uh, like, even to a common man's understanding that, you know, Taiwan does not stand a chance if China decides to, you know, go with a military offensive, unless US, of course, comes to its rescue. So that is very valid point. And the demographic change also, uh, that, you know, you know, because China has those uh, means to, you know, probably through misinformation campaigns or through, you know, as you mentioned, uh, through fake news or whatever, it can actually, you know, mold public opinion in its favor as well. Or, But yeah, let's see, that's something to watch for. Uh, all right, so uh, brings us to the last question that I have, and it is pertaining India. So, and this is one thing that I also personally focus on. I, you know, ethics and uh, like, for example, when we talk about international relations, you know, earlier we saw that, you know, countries used to come together based on ideologies, uh, you know, during the Cold War. Uh, even before that, even the age of empires, we saw that, you know, alliances were made in, you know, in matrimony or through other treaties of friendship Two countries came together, empires came together. In contemporary times, do we see that, you know, if at all, ethical considerations mean anything to countries? This I talk in, uh, you know, I talk about when I talk about India and, you know, because India did not start, India did not have uh, been having, you know, having uh, oil purchases from Russia. The oil purchases mm -hmm. were, you know, some one or two percent of the total consumption or the total imports mm -hmm. rather. And mm -hmm. uh, but when the crisis happened and the, when the oil prices fell, uh, you know, the Russian mm -hmm. oil prices, India started, you know, purchasing more. And it mm -hmm. said that it needs to, you know, take care of a huge population uh, here. And mm -hmm. that is why it needs uh, purchases which are, you know, cost effective. But uh, do we not see this as, you know, the, the, leaving apart the Russian, like, like the Western rebuke of uh, Indian purchases. But do we, as like us as Indians, do we not see this as 
kind of you know uh, i don't want to use the word unethical but you know because we see that you know russian war effort is being financed although in a very limited uh, proportion but it is being uh, financed through these purchases so mm-hmm. i want to talk about in general about ethical considerations mm-hmm. in international relations and mm-hmm. you know how do you see this you know in terms of the ethical uh, transactions this oil purchase mm-hmm. because you know sj shankar was very uh, he was he spoke about it very clearly and you know he did not shy away from you know answering the tough questions but still the question remains that was it necessary to go after these oil purchases was it so necessary to overlook a certain component which is happening you know people are dying in ukraine mm-hmm. so was it really necessary like i just want to know your opinion on this so yeah this is the last mm-hmm. question yeah i think this is my favorite question um you know see the thing about international relations is that there are no morals or there are no ethics for every country um you know as you know i am a neo realist so this is how i see it <laughs> the international system is anarchic every country has to ensure its own security if you know the the, the best way to ensure your security is to become the hegemon you know because well to have all the power now right now does india want to be the hegemon no because we know we don't we are not there really you know but we do have our own world view um when we talk about ethics you know uh while we did abstain at the level of the of, at the level of the un there are a couple of things which india did which do show that we do consider ethics as being important while we have to place our national interest first we had to secure our own citizens from ukraine from eastern europe first uh well we are also humans you know the world should also have should have looked at that ethical consideration like how could we sacrifice that huge a number of indians did the west really think of that when they were condemning us that our citizens are stuck struck there we need to save them these are also human lives no one really did why because there are no morals in international politics um but then you know when there was a voting at the level of the united nations uh, general assembly to mm-hmm. oust russia from the un hrc india right. keeping in line with its absent you know the way it has been abstaining it abstained mm-hmm. again and we have mm-hmm. just been abstaining throughout there were two mm-hmm. countries which voted against russia and mm-hmm. china this was an aberration from the abstentions that china had been following first so uh, you know i'm doing a relative kind of comparison just to show the ethical uh, considerations that india has had second when russia had to be branded as a war criminal um at the international court of justice india's judge did say and it was he was one of them who was actually very vocal about calling russia as a war criminal you know right two countries again abstained two countries again voted against it russia and china you know um there's another um, journal article which you know i'm writing and you know pr- probably sometime i'll share it with you in which um i talk about these 13 points and uh, you know has to and i do it a relative i do a relative comparison as to how india has been ethical and how china has been unethical in you know this uh, response to um russia's ukraine war i'll just give you like a quick two three points so that um you know just to show what our response has really been and how i think it is ethical okay mm-hmm. xi jinping had two phone calls with putin so far post the invasion modi had three phone calls with putin so far so far post the invasion she's discussed discussions with putin as compared to modi's um have stark differences 
She thanked Putin for attending the Olympics, made a mention of Russian athletes. Modi reiterated India's long-standing position in favor of dialogue and diplomacy. The two sides expressed the mutual intention for comprehensive strengthening of the relationship, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Okay. Um, then uh, India has made no criticisms of the sanctions against Russia. China has made comments on the international sanctions. You know. Um, Russia has made statements on how China and Russia withstand the West's efforts to sow discord. There is no such statement found from India because we don't want to disrupt the international system. We don't want to kill citizens, innocent citizens. Um, Russia reportedly sought Chinese military equipment. There are no such reports regarding India. Um, I talked about the ICJ. Then I'll tell you about this. Uh, um, you know, in June this year, the Bureau of Industry and Security of the Department of Commerce uh, of the U.S., they amended something called the Export Administrative Regulations, and they added 36 entities to this thing called Entity List, right? Now, these 36 entities have been determined by the U.S. government to be acting contrary to the national security or foreign policy interests of the US, which basically talk, which are basically about peace and stability, right? So the decision regarding these entities in this list was because of the activities these entities were engaging in, providing support to Russia's military and slash or defense industrial base. Specifically, these entities supplied items to Russian entities of concern. Um, and, you know, these entities come from the PRC, Lithuania, Pakistan, Russian Federation, Singapore, UAE, United Kingdom, Uzbekistan, and, Viet and Vietnam. India does not figure in this list. So this is how we are ethical. You know, there are no ethics. India will follow its national interests and its foreign policy goals first. But that does not mean that, you know, our Vasudeva Kutumbakam is devoid of any care or concern for human lives. So uh, we understand that a lot of human lives have been lost. We, our government has not said that, well, you know, let's put a blanket ban on calling the war a war for what it rightly is. It is a war. So um, I still would say, despite the fact that, you know, as a neorealist, there is no room for morals or ethics. I would still say India has been ethical. When the world started facing a food shortage, there were a lot of criticisms that why is India you know, keeping a lot of its wheat exports for itself. Why doesn't the world think that we are, well, next year going to be the world's most populated country with a lot of poor people? Should we sacrifice our people to feed the world? I don't think so. So, um, you know, even ethics or considerations of ethics need to be two-way two and our government or, you know, India would primarily think of itself. We will do other things, um, because, you know, we have this Vasudeva Kutumbakam and we think of the world as a family. We cannot see so many people being killed. So we do talk of peace. Modi has talked about it to Putin. Xi Jinping, not in those many terms as Modi has done. So I would still say India is a bit ethical as compared to a lot of other powers. So that's my take on that. And again, I'm sorry for hogging too much time. <laughs> no problem. But uh, it's very interesting that you chose China to compare India with. <laughs> Because, uh, <laughs> like, yeah, compared to China, yeah. I think everybody's response would be more ethical. But, uh, yeah, I think you, yeah, you did because... talk about a very some very crucial points here. That, you know, how, uh, mm -hmm. although, you know, it still leaves me with, leave, leaves me with uh, that I'm not fully convinced, I'd say. But, uh, yeah, mm -hmm. like, does tell me or, you know, tell the audience in great detail about, you know, what India's response has been. So, 
thanks a lot uh, so that will bring us to the end of this podcast it was great talking to you and having you on indo pacific circles podcast and uh, so i thank you dr patak and dr panigri for taking the time out and you know talking thank to me thank you for tuning in read this conversation on spotify apple and google podcasts to stay updated visit our website ipcircle.org and follow us on twitter at ip_circle the opinions expressed in this podcast belong to the speakers and do not represent the organizational views held by either the council for strategic and defense research or the center for policy research